electricity energy security uh, in developing Asia is a huge issue already, and it's going to become a much bigger issue. This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Om. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region. Our goal is to help our listeners better understand Asia and reach informed judgments. In this episode, I interviewed Senior Advisor and Research Director of NBR's Energy Security Program, Mike Herbert. We explored various issues related to the energy relationship between the United States and Japan. I asked Mike how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected global energy markets, as well as more specifically the U.S. and Japanese markets. We discussed what U.S. and Japanese policymakers have done separately and together to improve their nation's energy security. And Mike also assesses the barriers to further promoting and developing energy infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific and how China fits into this geopolitical analysis. In addition to his roles with NBR, Mike is also a senior lecturer on international and Asian energy at the Graduate School of International Relations and Pacific Studies, UC San Diego. Previously, he spent 20 years in the oil industry in strategic planning roles for ARCO, where from 1997 to 2000, he was Director for Global Energy and Economics and responsible for worldwide energy, economic, and political analysis. For more on his bio, check out NBR's page at nbr.org. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Mike Herberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're really excited to have you with us, and we have a lot of issues to cover. But first, I wanted to start at the origins. How did you first get interested in energy issues? What's the story there? Well, you know, I, in terms of college or any training, I had absolutely none. Uh, and so uh, it was kind of a, just a happenstance. I, I went to graduate school, you know, PhD in international political economy at UCLA. And once I graduated, I uh, went to work for Bank of America in San Francisco, uh, helping them put together their global credit risk monitoring system. This is back in 1980, 81, dates me way back there. Uh, they were exposed all over the world with credit risk, had no idea how, what their political risk for all that credit was around the world. Uh, and so they hired me along with some other people to put together a global credit risk monitoring system that both covered credit, but also political risk, policy risk, uh, where, they were, where they had huge uh, debt exposure, Brazil, Mexico, places like that. So anyway, at a conference in New York, I ran into a guy from the oil company Arco, and he said, we're looking for somebody to beef up our political risk work uh, it, we're expanding all over the world in oil and mining and everything else. We need a bigger, a bigger effort. Would you be interested in coming to work for us down in Los Angeles? And uh, I wanted to get back to Southern California. The oil industry paid twice what the banking industry paid. <laughs> so, so uh, I ended up going to work for Arco in Los Angeles, first uh, doing work on political risk, and that's I learned the oil industry from the ground up. You know, just from the experience with no training to begin with. But in a lot of ways, that's the way to do it. You really uh, you understand the raw nitty gritty of how, how markets work, how pricing works. Uh, and then by the end, I was head of energy and economics for the company, uh, responsible for oil price forecasts, 
for the, our capital budget planning, forecasting energy markets globally, also head of political risk, country risk work for our, our stuff around the world. So that's pretty good training <laughs> uh, from the ground up. It seems that you've developed over these many decades a practitioner's point of view on the issues. And so I think one of the main things that people are looking at these days is the impact of COVID-19 on the global energy markets. I'd like to get your take on what the impact of the pandemic has been there. It's, it's quite literally apocalyptic. It's like a giant tsunami has hit uh, the major energy markets. Oil demand has dropped by, uh, well, for the second quarter of 2020, it dropped by 25 million barrels a day. That's one quarter of world oil demand disappeared uh, virtually overnight. So the gas industry, natural gas prices crashed because of the oversupply and, and, and the decline in demand. Uh, electricity, coal demand, everything has dropped in varying degrees. So it's it's literally uh, created the demand shock across the global energy system uh, and a huge oversupply problem. Uh, it's scrambled the geopolitics of oil. OPEC has had to scramble to try to put together, re-put together their deal with Russia, uh, cutting production by an unprecedented 10 million barrels a day, and which many of us thought is simply not possible. But under pressure, OPEC has had to cut dramatically. Production of oil just declined dramatically in the U.S., Canada, Brazil, other places with relatively high-cost supplies. Uh, so the oil market has been hit just, uh, you know, in a scale that's way beyond anything we've uh, seen and still is gradually, only gradually beginning to recover as demand, as the COVID effects on the economy begin to ease, oil demand begins to grow, but oil isn't going to be in trouble all the way through 2021. You know, it seems unlikely that we're going to go back to the same kind of oil consumption patterns, you know, air travel, flying around the world. Commuting, commuting patterns, it seems unlikely we're just going to go back to the old system. Mobility is going to change, or at least is beginning to change dramatically. People moving to the suburbs, uh, moving out of the center of cities, uh, not using mass transit because uh, they're uncomfortable with the, the COVID exposure. It's creating havoc with trying to figure out where the oil demand is going to be. Is it going to go up because people are driving suburbs and all around? Is it going to go down because uh, they're not commuting into major cities? So the whole future of mobility is unclear, and that's the future of oil is really largely linked to transportation and mobility. So uh, still chronic oversupply and uncertainty about the future. Natural gas and LNG demand has been cratered. Gas prices in Europe and Asia are lower than they have literally ever been, uh, including very low prices in the U.S. You know, Asia's LNG future has been impacted by that. Coal is taking a huge hit because of the decline in demand for electricity. Uh, on a positive note, a lot of places, the first thing they've cut back on using to generate uh, electricity has been coal. And so you've had this ironic, uh, at least temporary situation where coal consumption has dropped very sharply, uh, but renewables consumption has actually risen somewhat since the beginning of the COVID crisis. And the reason is that the incremental cost of renewables, wind and solar, hydroelectric, the, the incremental marginal cost of 
operation is almost zero when you take out the capital cost. Uh, whereas if you're using coal or natural gas, you're still paying fuel prices, transportation costs, other stuff. So suddenly renewables become at the margin terrifically important. To, and the question there is, will that continue as the economy begins to recover? People begin to restart those coal-fired power plants, especially in places like China and Southeast Asia. So we still don't know what the longer-term future of that is. Uh, but the rise of renewables through the crisis has been a, certainly a bright spot. Uh, the really good news is that carbon emissions have dropped dramatically uh, in the short term. They've dropped in second quarter by nearly what 15% globally carbon emissions. Nothing like that's ever happened before. That's just simply uh, off the charts. It's a it's a great situation. The question really is what happens as the economy gradually recovers. Do we just simply go back to that same energy consumption and therefore emissions come right back? After the 2008-9 financial crisis, carbon emissions rose right back up to previous levels and continued to grow. So are we facing that kind of a, that, that kind of a shift? So will we go back to the same old pattern and emissions just simply come right back? Or can we engineer some kind of a, a, a green recovery? Uh, and you hear a lot about this in, in uh, Europe in particular, that why don't we use all of this uh, fiscal stimulus to invest in a greener energy infrastructure? I have to say that I think that the evidence is mixed on that. Europe is doing a lot of investing towards a green recovery. But in the U.S., there's pretty limited. Uh, and certainly with the Trump administration, there's no real push for a greener uh, recovery. Throughout Asia... China, uh, Southeast Asia, they're just simply preoccupied with getting the economy going again. And so whether that recovery tends to be a green recovery, I think is still very uncertain because the real preoccupation is we just got to get the economy going. And if that means using more coal, building more coal-fired power plants, then so be it. So I, I think whether we can sustain that decline in emissions or just simply go back to the same patterns, I think it's still a, a huge open question. So, you've given us a terrific wide-angle lens um, on the impact uh, on the effects of COVID nineteen. If we're to drill down a little bit on the United States, you mentioned that oil production has been cut in the United States. Can you speak more broadly on the overall impact of the pandemic on U.S. markets and U.S. energy security? Yeah, you know, it's it's. Uh, the, the collapse in prices, I mean, you had uh, one day back in what March, I think it was, where crude oil prices on the NYMEX went negative by $40 a barrel. Uh, and then, you know, that was a, kind of a technical process, but uh, bounced back to $20 a barrel and then gradually inched back up towards about $40 a barrel. We're about 37 right now in the U.S. But this is really... Uh, ravaged the U.S. shale oil production. And what you've seen is, you know, we had a huge collapse in U.S. shale production back in 2016 when there was oversupply, prices collapsed, U.S. shale production dropped dramatically. Prices recovered back into the 70s as OPEC pulled themselves together. U.S. shale oil production, you know, came roaring back and ended up at new, new highs around 8 to 9 million barrels a day. And total U.S. production was up at 13, the highest 
in, in history, 13 million barrels a day. That has again cratered with this price collapse. Uh, U.S. shale oil production is down by 25 to 30% just in the last seven, eight months. Uh, and that's because at $40 a barrel, there is no incentive, financial incentive to drill. What they were doing is simply producing their existing wells, but shale oil production drops quickly, very quickly. Once you bring a well on it, it drops by 50 to 70% in the first 18 months. So unless you keep drilling on this treadmill, overall production is going to continue to decline. Uh, this has been a, a body blow to the U.S. shale oil industry, as well as the U.S. shale natural gas industry. Uh, what this has done, again, is expose the very fragile financial underpinnings of U.S. shale, financed by low interest rates, capital that's looking for some sort of a return, cheap money. And so there, the industry was already under pressure from their investors to produce better returns before the COVID hit, crisis hit. And with the COVID crisis, it's really uh, just a further body blow to the industry. So U.S. oil production is down pretty dramatically. What does that mean for U.S. energy security, energy independence? You know, the U.S. has never been never insulated from from uh, energy security issues because it's you know our oil market is linked to global oil markets and global oil prices. So even if we may produce all the oil we consume, and we were actually right at the point where we're virtually self sufficient in crude oil, that doesn't make us really any more energy secure or energy independent because it still depends on what happens in Riyadh, what happens in Baghdad, what happens in uh, Moscow, policy, production, investments around the world in new supply. There are a lot of people who argue this decline in production is threatening U.S. energy security and energy independence. You know, really what matters mostly is this is a global oil market and we're subject to the shortages, oversupplies, prices that are determined in that global market, not just in the U.S. So, uh, you know, my own feeling, I think most energy experts, it doesn't have much to do with U.S. energy independence. There's no such thing, really. But it's certainly, you know, damaged our oil industry, damaged our natural gas prospect. The U.S. has become a major power in the global LNG, natural gas LNG business, with super low natural gas prices, massive shale gas supplies domestically. And so we've become a big exporter, especially to Asia. That industry is also now under tremendous pressure uh, because prices for that LNG in Asian markets and European markets are so low that there's simply no economics to support exporting to either Asia or Europe. Uh, it's a money losing proposition. We've seen a lot of the uh, big new proposals for new LNG terminals in the US are being deferred or canceled. Uh, the existing producers' uh, exports of LNG have dropped by 80% in the last uh, six months. And so uh, this has put the US you know, LNG business uh, and prospects really under a lot of pressure. I think ultimately we, we have some big existing producers who are gonna remain competitive and they've established a very strong market position in Asia and in Europe. So it's not the death of the industry, but it's going to be under tremendous pressure and will not be growing as fast as many people uh, thought a few years ago. As you noted, this is a global market. Energy security depends on what's happening in capitals around the world. 
So let's talk about Tokyo. Japan relies heavily on energy imports for its energy security. How has COVID-19 affected Japanese energy security and energy markets? It's a little bit schizophrenic for Japan because on the one hand, Japan really benefits from these low oil, natural gas, coal prices. Uh, because, it, as you said, they import virtually 95% of their energy supplies, oil and gas and coal. So they benefit economically from those low low prices. On the other hand, you know, the Japanese policymakers are const- always worried about energy security, supplies for the future of oil in particular, uh, since they're 100% import dependent on all these things. So part of their concern at this stage is that investment in new supplies for the future globally will decline dramatically, which they have. Global oil and gas upstream investment has dropped by 40% over the last uh, six, seven months. So what worries them is that that sets the stage for shortages of supplies two, three, four years out, new oil supplies and gas supplies that need to be invested in. So on the one hand, they benefit, but on the other hand, it increases their anxiety about the future uh, security of the supply picture. The other side also is Japan has a huge set of industries, big trading companies, utilities, others uh, who have been, you know, big in the regional LNG markets, who have made a big business out of moving LNG, especially around the Asian marketplace. And they, they've seen particularly Southeast Asia and South Asia as huge new markets for uh, new LNG terminals, uh, moving LNG. Uh, building these terminals, Japanese companies. Uh, this has been a big business for them, and they hope for it to be much bigger. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of pressure on that side because prices for LNG are so low uh, that it's hard to make sense to make investments at this point. They continue to work at this, and they're still major players, but I think it's been put a lot of pressure on a lot of Japanese inter- industries that have really seen the expansion of LNG in, in Asia as a huge new business opportunity that's that's under a lot of pressure as we speak how have japanese policymakers responded to these impacts the uh, public finance like japan bank for international cooperation continues to provide subsidized financing for these new projects you know the, the japanese business system uh has the ability to, to ride through these things much better than the much more competitive markets in, say, North America or or even Europe. Uh, you know, the, the relationships between the companies, the ability to sustain large debt loads without having banks uh, calling in those loans. Uh, so I think, you know, the government has provided support. Uh, these companies are kind of hunkering down. Uh, I think everybody is looking for the upside, and that is that the LNG business if LNG prices are that low, there's likely to be a real demand response out in Asia, uh, especially in the Southeast Asian markets, which are price sensitive. So with LNG at $4 a thousand cubic feet, uh, LNG becomes a very attractive proposition if you're in Indonesia or Philippines or Thailand or Vietnam, uh, when you know just three years ago it was $14. So now it's wildly competitive. So I think the Japanese companies and the government are hope looking for a growth in the LNG demand side that comes from these low prices and 
huge oversupply in the marketplace. So I think I think they're working through it like they always do very gradually. Government and companies cooperate very closely, unlike the U.S., uh, which makes these transitions a little easier for those companies. So if in Japan, you know, through or like JBIC, Japanese companies can ride this out better than other markets, you know, how is how are companies um, how are companies in the U.S. or and how is the U.S. government responding to these challenges? Uh, the U.S. is just a much more openly competitive. So in the in in Japan, you're seeing companies and the government work together to manage through this low low period. And but in the U.S., what you see is very little help from the U.S. government. It's just simply not set up to do much of that. Uh, and so what you're seeing here is a huge uh, wave of bankruptcies amongst the shale producing companies and consolidation in the industry. You're seeing some of the large, much stronger players in the shale industry uh, buy up, you know, the weaker players. Chevron just uh, did a deal to buy Noble Energy for, I think, $9 billion. Uh, Noble was under a lot of pressure. And Chesapeake, one of the biggest, has gone bankrupt. So in the U.S., you're seeing the industry consolidate through bankruptcies. The strongest survive, the most efficient survive, the biggest uh, survive, and, and many of the smaller players are being, being ground out of the business. So it's a very different remark, you know, marketplaces and how they've responded to the pressure on the industries. Uh, it's, a, it's a real uh, perfect uh, case of contrasting Japanese business and government relations uh, in the context of wanting to ensure the energy security. And in the U.S., business government relations in the energy industry, where the industry, for the most part, is on its own. You know, the Trump administration has tried to help with the tax relief and regulatory relief. But by and large, the industry is basically having to do its own process of consolidating uh, and driving out the weakest competitors. I think last week was the one-year anniversary of the Japan-U.S.-Mekong Power Partnership. There are a number of other initiatives. I'd welcome your take on the effectiveness of these bilateral energy initiatives between the United States and Japan. Well, first, in the raw energy industry terms, uh, Japan uh, companies have been big investors in U.S. LNG projects. Uh, they see it both as a business opportunity, but a way to make sure that Japan uh, secures its LNG supplies in the future. And so... Having the U.S. as a big LNG exporter is a fantastic notion for Japan, which was, you know, for a long time, very heavily dependent on the Middle East LNG supplies, Qatar especially. So moving to a more stable marketplace like the U.S. as a supplier was really, uh, uh, from a Japanese perspective, a real plus, and they've invested heavily, and there's a tremendous amount of energy trade between the U.S. shale companies and the Japanese companies uh, taking that LNG. Uh, more broadly, we have a whole set of bilateral and collaborative new things that we're doing that are related to investing in Asia. And so there's the Asia Edge Act in the U.S. Congress. There's the Build Act. Uh, there's the Blue Dot Network. And the U.S. and Japan are cooperating, the Japan-U.S. Energy Partnership and a set of partnerships in the Mekong region in Southeast Asia. and all of these things are aimed at first really promoting the use of more LNG in Southeast Asia and developing Asia, which are the new growing LNG markets. 
But it's also a response to uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. And China has been out there financing a huge wave of coal-fired power plants across uh, developing Asia and, and Central Asia. And coming with that is Chinese influence and other kinds of uh, diplomatic benefits that they're getting. So the BUILD Act, the Asia EDGE Act, all these things, the Japan-U.S. partnership, uh, are designed to provide these Asian developing countries an alternative to financing for energy projects and energy infrastructure, an alternative to the Belt Chinese money from the Belt and Road Initiative. So it's both an effort to uh, to support Southeast Asia's energy security by making more supplies available, uh, but it's also a diplomatic a part of the U.S. free and open Indo-Pacific diplomatic strategy. Uh, energy is a key component of that strategy uh, to be helping Asia and developing Asia build this uh, cleaner and better supplied, particularly electricity supply. The whole region suffers from a huge lack of investment uh, due to pricing distortions, state monopoly controls, a whole set of things that have made these markets kind of uh, distorted. Uh, and so what the U.S. and Japan are trying to do is make new investment available uh, for these new, particularly electricity power infrastructure that is an alternative to China's, you know, very attractive offer of relatively inefficient coal-fired power plants. Uh, so it's both energy policy and diplomacy in the free and open Indo-Pacific. You know, the, really the first notion of the free and open Indo-Pacific uh, was uh, the Abe government in Japan bringing this up back as far as 2013. And it's only around 2017 that the U.S. has joined into this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And Japan and the U.S. are now collaborating very closely uh, with financing projects uh, and various partnerships. So it's a, it's a major diplomatic effort as well as trying to help developing Asia meet its booming electricity needs. And I want to get back to the influence of China in a minute, but first I want to dig a little bit more into energy infrastructure. It seems both trying to promote LNG as well as coal-fired power plants requires significant energy infrastructure upgrades in Southeast Asia. What are some of the barriers for the United States to promoting and developing a good infrastructure in the region? Well, there's a whole set of, I mean, the whole system is, is underlying it is the lack of new investment and new supplies. Uh, and that's what makes China's offer so attractive is because it's rel not relatively inexpensive finance for new, new power plants. The problem has been that all of these developing Asian markets are dominated by state companies, state energy companies. There's a state upstream oil and gas company. There's usually a state electricity company. There's a state company that controls pipelines. There's a state company that controls transmission distribution of electricity. Uh, these are tend to be extremely inefficient state-run enterprises. Uh, prices are controlled and kept artificially low. You know, remember affordability is a key issue in these developing, uh, you know, relatively poor developing countries. Policymakers rightly want to make electricity affordable, but by holding prices too low, you simply distort the markets and there's no investment, no, no incentive for new investment because developers for these power supplies can't make economic sense out of these investments. 
there's local vested interests uh, that benefit from t t close relationships with the state companies, state energy companies. They don't want to see outside new, much more efficient, much more dynamic investment coming in because it basically breaks into their cozy controlled market. So there's a whole set of uh, pricing distortions, subsidies, resistance from state companies and state enterprises that control the existing infrastructure uh, and local vested interests. And so it, it, uh, it tends to make it very difficult to find for outside investors to find energy, electricity, infrastructure investments that make economic sense. So that's, that's another reason why Southeast Asia tends to gravitate towards coal as a supply for electricity because it's low cost and, and helps with this affordability dimension, but obviously is, is, is having hugely negative climate consequences because Asia is growing coal consumption to produce electricity. So that low cost or low price environment that they create with the domestic monopolies makes it very difficult to make new investments. And that's, that's, a, that's really what the US EDGE Act and Japan-US uh, energy partnership and other things are really heavily focused on how do we create more competitive open marketplaces, energy marketplaces in each country, encourage them to move towards more open markets, to break the monopolies of these ossified state companies that they need to do to attract private investment, international investment, uh, to invest in their electricity uh, infrastructure. The money's out there. There's massive supplies uh, of pension funds, infrastructure funds. The global economy is afloat in liquidity from these huge uh, monetary stimulus from Europe, US Fed, and Japan. So the interest rates are virtually zero. There's trillions of dollars looking for bankable investments. So the trick for the Indo-Pacific strategy and the Japan-US partnership on this is to create the conditions in these developing Asian energy markets, which can then uh, attract this kind of private investment out there uh, because it's got, you know, the investments have to make some kind of sense or you're not going to be able to attract private investment. China's Belt and Road Initiative, it's financed by the China Development Bank, China Exxon Bank, these deals don't necessarily have to make all that great of economic sense. It gives the big Chinese state energy companies things to do, things to build, projects to do, businesses to, to run. So uh, it's a very easy alternative. So how does the U.S. and Japan get this new private investment uh, into these Asian developing market electricity investment? They've got to be more bankable uh, markets, and that means a more stable policy more market pricing, reducing subsidies, reducing the power of these domestic vested interests in state state companies. This is a very difficult thing to do politically. I mean, it's hard to overstate. Everybody, particularly the beneficiaries of artificially low energy pricing in these markets, are domestic industries that you know that take advantage of these low energy prices. If the government says well, we're going to raise energy prices so we can attract investment. Damages of the business prospects of some very powerful domestic industries. Uh, it also very unpopular with the public when kerosene prices go up and bus fares go up because fuel prices rise. 
So it's a very politically challenging thing to open these energy markets uh, to new pricing. And but that's what's got to really happen in order to track at least to scale this new international investment that is what the U.S. and Japan are really trying to leverage and open up. So if we can double click on that a little bit further, what I'm hearing is an approach to compete with China's BRI. No country can compete dollar for dollar against Chinese government investments into these programs, but perhaps private investment from the United States, Japan, other like-minded countries. Um, if, if Southeast Asia becomes a more attractive target for that type of investment, that's the necessary capital to build the infrastructure. Absolutely, absolutely. The key is how does U.S. and how does U.S. and Japan with this, the, their partnerships leverage that that international investment to uh, to mobilize it? The, you, you're right. The U.S. and Japan can't come anywhere near matching dollar for dollar the scale of China's uh, you know tsunami of of capital and investment going into the region. Uh, Japan. Uh, it has capacity far greater than the U.S. And Japan, uh, the Abe administration initially committed $100 billion to new investments in energy infrastructure and other infrastructure across developing Asia several years ago. They recently raised that to $200 billion. Uh, and with Japan Bank for International Cooperation, uh, Nexon, which is their uh, investment guarantee uh, company, uh, they can mobilize a great deal of Japanese capital and other capital. The U.S., on the other hand, just is simply not run that way. The Build Act, uh, I think, uh, involves about sixty billion dollars of government capital to to help mobilize private capital. But that's spread over not just energy; that's spread over other industries and investments as well. So, how much capital can the U.S. really, as a government, put in? Very little. The key is that if U.S. government capital can leverage all that international capital that's out to private capital. Uh, and that's the that's really what's what the effort is all about, is how do we create conditions that can attract that international investment that's out there waiting to find bankable projects. Japan as well, similar kind of situation. How do we create bankable projects? Their business government relationship is such that it's not as difficult to mobilize private Japanese capital. And the truth is, the Japanese companies are the largest infrastructure investments investors across developing Asia of anybody. Still, even today, they have far larger scale of energy infrastructure investments in the region than China. So Japan is a major force in the region. Wants to grow that business. Wants to grow its diplomatic influence and partnerships in Southeast Asia. And again, there you begin to go get into the whole issue of how Japan and the others in the region try to manage the rise of China and build diplom diplomatic ties, partnerships with Southeast and South Asia uh, as an alternative to their becoming increasingly dependent on China and China's market. So it, it, it all broadens into a much bigger diplomatic effort of how Japan and, and the U.S. tried to manage this 800-pound gorilla of the Chinese investment and capital and political and diplomatic influence expanding through the region. You have this kind of shoving match. I always think of it as kind of a shoving match. And part of the energy infrastructure partnerships is to help build Japanese and U.S. diplomatic partnerships and influence in the region.
So digging further into that, it seems that there are a number of things that Washington and Tokyo can do unilaterally. Are there other things that you think that Japan, the Japan, Japan and the United States could do bilaterally to strengthen their energy security? Well, I think, you know, most, mostly um, partnerships, particularly on the LNG side, Japan and the U.S. have extremely close diplomatic relationships and economic relationships. So I think the, the trick is how the U.S. and Japan can work together effectively to kind of mobilize uh, investment and meet this infrastructure need out there. If you look at what we're doing with them, the EDGE Act, BUILD Act, uh, and the Blue Dot Network, these are all still extremely new uh, and not very well framed yet. I think the Japanese have a very crisp view of this because they're experienced in Southeast Asia over the decades. But I think on the U.S. side, we still struggle with the U.S.'s ability to, to uh, do a you know, whole-of-government kind of effort on this. Uh, this is not, a, not an uncommon problem for the U.S. government. So Japan has a much far better ability to do these whole-of-government kinds of, of approaches to this. So I think that the difficult part in the bilateral is Japan is constantly, <laughs> you, you see their representatives in Washington, D.C., how closely they're, uh, they're, they work uh, in, the, in the policy trying to help the U.S. pull itself together <laughs> a little better, to put it simply, uh, to be able to mobilize this effort. Uh, so I think a lot of this is Japan pulling the U.S. along. You know, I, I, I think they've got the right idea here. I think, you know, electricity, energy security uh, in developing Asia is a huge issue already, and it's going to become a much bigger issue. Uh, and so I, I think policymakers out there, many of them, understand what they need to do. Uh, and so the question is just supporting their efforts to do that, pushing, prodding, holding out the uh, the 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 uh, opportunity for that new investment electricity is going to be a critical issue for developing asian countries you know electricity demand is rising at six percent a year uh you know the fastest in the world uh do they end up just building a massive fleet of coal-fired power plants which is the easy way to do this you know hugely damaging from a climate perspective uh and so it's really vital that the U.S. and Japan work with those countries to move both to a cleaner energy mix, uh, but also to meet their electricity supply security, uh, because it's a deeply political issue if they don't. So I think, you know, the U.S. and Japan have the right idea here. It's the execution is still up, up in the air. As, you know, you can still question whether the U.S. can really pull off the execution of this and maintain its attention span. For example, if you change administrations to a Biden administration, how much would they continue along these policy lines? I, I like to think they would understand the importance of it and continue it. But I, I know from a Japanese perspective, they constantly, chronically have to concern about the chronic short attention span of the U.S. government policy process. This has been a comprehensive conversation on U.S.-Japan energy relations. I want to take a step back and ask a series of rapid-fire questions, rapid-fire in the fact that the questions are brief, the answers can be as long as you like. But first question would be, if you had a single book that you'd recommend to an Asian generalist who's trying to better understand energy issues, what book would you recommend? One of the challenges of teaching 
Uh, I have not been able to find a very good book to, to use on this. But I think to, 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 uh, to, to understand these energy challenges that are being faced by the developing countries and the different kinds of fuels and everything, I think there's nobody better than Dan Jurgen to kind of explain that in terms that, you know, a generalist can really grasp. You know, it's not wonky, you know, and that's part of the problem. You can find textbooks or you find books, but they're very, they're so wonky that, you know, they're not really going to work very well. Uh, so I'd, I'd start with Dan Jurgen's latest two books because I think they really give you a, a good introduction to global energy challenges and it dynamics, it, you know, natural gas, renewables, all of these things and why they're challenging to move forward. Uh, that would be where I would start, and then you could begin to apply that to the to the Asian context. If there's not the ideal book you can use for classrooms, maybe you can write that book one day. <laughs> yeah, it would. You know, I, I would. It would be fun to do because uh, you know, having had all the real world experience, you you know, it's not going to be a politically wonky. Uh, it wouldn't be a politically wonky book. Uh, more more likely, I would you know edit something to bring just the right pieces of the puzzle uh, together. But yeah, it's really been, this, I use a, a textbook in our class, but it's from 2014, uh, you know, Energy Security and World in Transition, I think it's called, Jan Kalitsky and uh, David Goldwyn, the editors. So I actually have a chapter on Asia energy, uh, but it covers, you know, worldwide a set of topics. It's not that great, but it's uh, one of the few that I think is can speak to broader general audience, uh, and you, you then you use the course to to focus in on the key themes that are really relevant for Asia. One year from now, which of the major sources of energy will see the greatest increase, and which will see the greatest decrease, and why? Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. The the, the increase, the rate of increase, will definitely be renewables. Solar and wind, uh, and, and a pretty good slug of nuclear, uh, mainly coming out of China. Uh, you know, China at any given time has ten nuclear power plants under construction. Renewables actually will grow faster than anything. And in fact, if you go by sheer capacity, in the last this past year, there was more renewable electricity generation capacity built than any other source: coal, natural gas. Uh, renewables are moving very, very fast in the system. And which one will grow the slowest or at least decline the most? Uh, one would hope that would be coal. Uh, coal remains under tremendous pressure uh, environmentally. Uh, it's being driven almost completely out of the European market. It's being competed out of the U.S. market by cheap natural gas. You know, just about seven or eight years ago, coal provided half of U.S. electricity supplies. Today, it's only about 12%. And most of that gap is really is a huge increase in natural gas. So I think coal will be loser. Uh, in Southeast and South Asia, it's a much tougher question because renewables are harder to do because of a lot of these things I was talking about, control pricing, um, national monopolies, uh, things like uh, you know dispatch and curtailments and other things that make it much harder in that context. And it's much easier to default to coal in Southeast Asia. Uh, so I think there it's a slightly different dynamic. But even there, for example, Vietnam recently canceled the big planned coal-fired power plant. 
uh, and instead they're building a coastal LNG facility to provide natural gas to a large power plant complex on the, on the coast. So you're seeing now beginning of cancellation of major coal projects, even in Southeast Asia. So I, th I think it's hopeful for the future that coal is going to take a beating and that renewables will grow relatively fast. Among our listeners, we have undergraduate and graduate students. So what advice would you give to an aspiring student who's interested in pursuing the study of, you can say, energy relations or more specifically, U.S.-Japan energy relations? You know, that's a tough question. I, I get it from my students a lot. You know, <laughs> This is really interesting. How do I get into working in this kind of stuff? And I said, well, it's, it's you got a dumb luck fall into it probably, like I did. But I, I think you kind of dive in. Uh, there's many, uh, you know, there's good academic programs around. Johns Hopkins, SICE, for example, has terrific program. ARC School at UC San Diego now has a terrific energy environment program. Whole set of uh, people we brought in. So David Victor kind of control, you know, runs that and he's terrific. Uh, so there's a lot of really great academic programs now on kind of energy and political economy. As far as the industry, I mean, this is a really, I think it's wildly exciting time. This is a, the whole energy tr industry is in tr massive global transition from a fossil fuel driven system towards a cleaner mix. So I think it's going to be fun to dive into this. I think U.S.-Japan cooperation on energy is going to continue uh, even under, a, say, a Biden administration uh, because this is too important. And I think Japan is trying to make sure the U.S. doesn't lose its focus on this as well. And if you if you think about this in the context of the competition with China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, this is going to be hugely important, both energy uh, challenge, but also a diplomatic uh, dynamic to this to try to use energy as a way to kind of fend off growing Chinese influence in the region. Uh, both countries have huge domestic energy challenges they're constantly working on. You can dive in, into the policy uh, arena in Japan or in the U.S. Uh, Japan energy security is always the number one question, making sure those imported supplies are out there uh, at an affordable price. So that's always the number one uh, drive for the policymakers in Japan. But I've had many students, for example, who, who are seconded over from the Ministry of Energy, you know, Economics, Trade and Industry, METI, out of their energy groups that come in to the UCSD for a two-year master's. And they're doing, you know, they're going back and doing really interesting things working in the Japanese government on energy security, move towards renewables, uh, Japanese energy diplomacy. Uh, so if they want to go that direction, I think it's terrific opportunities in Japan and the government, foreign ministry, METI, uh, and other places. Uh, JBIC is a terrific place uh, in Japan's Bank for International Cooperation. There's terrific opportunities and great things to do within places like JBIC. Uh, on the U.S. side, the industry is still growing. And I think if I were going into it now, it would be in renewables. Uh, in, in a sense, the oil and gas industries, if you look at a 40-year horizon, is their sunset industries, essentially. Uh, if I were going into it, I think renewables are going to be very dynamic. Uh, battery storage companies, uh, 
uh, policy in the State Department and elsewhere trying to move this stuff forward, the Energy Department. And so I think in the U.S. side, uh, there's tremendous opportunities, particularly in trying to find push this renewables. Hopefully, after the Trump administration, there will be a new climate initiative from the U.S. But in the absence of that, I think the way to go, if you're interested in pursuing climate policy, pushing towards a cleaner climate uh, mix, uh, that would be through NGOs and through think tanks. You know, there's a whole bunch of them that are doing tremendous work trying to move policy forward on a cleaner energy mix in the U.S. and globally. There's terrific opportunities in, in places. They're always looking for smart people uh, in those places. And you learn tremendously by seeing actually how this works, what the challenges are. So I, I think there's lots of fun things to do. It's, we're in this historic energy transition. Uh, and I'm like an old, you know, I've worked in the fossil industry and I've become an old fossil in the sense of that's what I know best. And I know that it's, it's essentially a sunset industry. You know, one of the really interesting things to think about is what is the, when we reach peak demand for oil, which is coming sooner as a result of the COVID, I think, what does the oil market look like then? Prices and, and these really interesting set of questions about what that looks like. You've laid out a number of helpful options that aspiring students can pursue in the energy industry, especially at a challenging time when you can't just go up to New York and run into an APCO representative so easily anymore. So, Mike, we've covered a lot of ground. We started with discussing the impact of COVID-19 on the global energy markets, zoomed in on the impact on U.S. and Japanese industries, I've talked about future prospects in energy, and we ended on um, some, uh, some interesting ideas on how somebody interested in pursuing a career here could um, pursue those options. So, Mike, thanks so much for your time, your insights. This has been a great conversation. Anytime. I always like a captive audience. This podcast was produced by Ian Smith. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Website development was led by Sandra Ward. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight. 